Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at the current administration and we address the existential threats to America. We are also, I want to say, having, I believe, what's been talked about for years but rarely happens. We are actually having a uh, national conversation about race with candor, intelligence, and goodwill, at least as much intelligence as I can muster. But we're actually having a good conversation. We'll continue that today with Peter Kersenow. He's a partner with Banesh's Labor and Employment Practice Group, also a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. We'll get his thoughts on the current protests, police engagement with African Americans, and the fallout from the killing of George Floyd and others. I'd like to discuss a few things first, to read an email and comment on it, because it's very well done and very interesting. So in terms of uh, the current national conversation about race, forget it. Listen to ours coming up, the one yeah, you and oh, I right. just had yeah. with Peter Kersenow. And, you know, a lot of what I think is in there, and I don't know if any of these proposals are going to mean anything, but the president's kind of forced to do something or it's going to be he'd be accused of not being interested. But uh, I agree with Peter. Most of what matters here is what happens on the local level. But let's adjust this conversation to talk about things that are real. And I believe there are some real things to talk about, as I make plain in my conversation with Peter. And, um, you know, let's not turn it into a tantrum. Let's not turn it into a harangue on either side. And I think there's some good food for thought in this discussion. And it pretty much summarizes where I am. And we'll hear from the estimable Peter Kersenow. Now, we had an extraordinarily good set of emails. Unfortunately, can only read one, but we picked one out because it's not a familiar name to me. Is that right? Uh, let's see. Uh, coming from Christy Pemberton in Largo, Florida. I, I don't, I'm not familiar. Maybe she's written us before. Do you recall? Uh, I don't I don't think so, although the content of this email seems familiar uh, from before, having a family gathering, and they were talking about education, and it kind of got heated. But I'm not sure if you it's You think the that's the only email, one but... in the country that where that happens? <laughs> Maybe not. Claude said, oh, well, this was unique. It was about a family that got together and they were talking <laughs> politics and, and they got things got heated. Over Thanksgiving. Yeah, Thanksgiving. I'm not sure if that's the one. But anyway, uh, yeah, let's read it. Um, and, and by the way, you know, keep sending the emails to uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. This one particular, uh, we took a kind of a break from... I think we're allowed to take a break from the national conversation on race, right? I mean, it's okay to Yeah, do and we actually took a break on the national conversation about COVID-19, too. Yeah. No, but now right. we're back. All right, but now ahead. we're back. So this email uh, from our friend Christy in Largo, Florida. She says, I'm so glad my husband found this podcast. Uh, you are now my favorite running partner. I wonder how long does she, does she take us on a run? Like, how long are these runs that we go on? I, I can't sign up to be your partner unless I know how long. Right. You exactly. know, when I jogged with George Bush, President Bush, mm-hmm. Herbert Walker in Houston, he said, let's run, and you can fill me in on the drug war. I was drug czar. Yeah. I said, you got your choice. I can fill you in on the drug war, or we can run. I can't do both. <laughs> he said, we'll run slow, and we did, and he ran slow for me. Okay. <laughs> very sweet, very considerate. But, uh, I, yeah, is it Christy? Yes. Christy. Mm-hmm. I want to know how fast you run, Christy, yeah. so let us know in the next How email. fast, how far. Okay. No, how I'm fast, focused, how far, yeah. Yeah, I'm focused on the education and information I'm receiving. I forget about the uh, panting, sweating, and uh, blotting. But, hey, today I ran uh, my fastest in years, and so she'll give us an update on that. She we says, need to know all that. We need no time, you know, yeah. Yeah, distance. Insufficient so, yeah. information here, yeah. Um, as a mom uh, to an incoming college freshman who didn't get a commencement, uh, an incoming high school senior, and a homeschooled third grader, and an incoming kindergartner with an IEP. Individualized educational program. Got it. It's for special ed students. Okay. Yes, yes I know her fourth child is special ed. She refers to it later in the email. Got it. So she's got four. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
I disagree with the notion that COVID might not factor into the election because it might be behind us. I agree. I think it will factor in. It comes roaring back, as some people say. You know, it takes another big body count. Um, it'll certainly be a factor, large factor. It'll be a factor anyway. But how big or small depends on what happens next. If this thing, we're now seeing this pattern of, of more tests positive, but so many more tests mm-hmm. that you're going to have positives and so much more mingling. We knew there was going to be more people coming down with it, but the fatality rate continues to go down, down, down. So my guess it's going to be more of a number three or four item rather than a number one or two item. But go ahead. Okay. So Florida State University has already significantly altered the way they will providing housing and has already implemented a face mask rule as well as reserved the right to enter your dorm room at any time to make sure it is clean and you have a sufficient stock of your own cleaning supplies to combat COVID. Wait a minute. Florida State? Yeah. Is going to reserve the right to break into your break college into your dorm room. Make sure it's clean. Make sure, you know, not to look for weed or drugs or beer, or, but no. to make sure it's clean. And that you have uh, Lysol spray. And They're going to have a lot of violations. Animals. I'm just going to tell you that right now. <laughs> college students are not known for their fastidiousness in these things. There you go. Uh, the University of Flo- uh, South Florida in my local area has already announced that learning from Thanksgiving through the end of the semester, including exams, will be online. Wait a minute. From Thanksgiving through the end of the semester will be online. Right. What about up to Thanksgiving? I assume that's online, too. I would assume so. They're not going to open it and then close it. Right. Wow. So they've already made that decision. It's no in-person, University of South Florida. Yeah. Does that mean no USF football? All right, go ahead. I don't know. Uh, St. Pete College in my uh, hometown has, for the fall, drastically reduced the number and size of in-person classes and dramatically increased the number of online classes. I mean, I understand the online thing, but it's not necessary. You know, these young people are not carriers of this. They don't get sick in, in any significant numbers, and they don't die in any significant numbers at all. So I, I, I just I just think this is a huge waste of, of people's time, money. Uh, it leads to all sorts of idleness. Uh, people are falling backwards in their, in their knowledge, what they know. I'm more concerned about elementary and secondary. But these concerns are, of hers about this kind of stuff is very legitimate. Go ahead. Absolutely. She says, additionally, the far-left medical physicians in my family insist that schools cannot resume their pre-COVID schedules and occupancy. Well, I'm sorry. I think they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I just think for the reasons I just cited. Go ahead. The local teachers. Even use- even Fauci and Burke say, you know, reopen the schools. Right. Be careful. Have your sprays and, you know, take temperatures. But go ahead and open the schools. The local teachers' union uh, seems to agree, yet the union contracts are being honored. Teachers have the summer off, and there uh, is no concerted effort to teach classroom teachers how to transition to online. All right, I just want to pause there. I mean, if anybody's running this show, it's the systems, and the unions are a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And these people are drawing their full salaries, and they're not doing a thing. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of them aren't doing a thing. Some of them are doing a thing, and some of them are doing online. But online is not work for everybody. It's just not the best way. And most kids need that personal interaction, that physical interaction. Um, They need to be in the presence of teachers, and they sure want to see their friends. So, uh, yeah, I understand the union saying, hey, no, we can't go back to school. It's not safe. Well, they're also enjoying their income and their time off. Add to that children with special needs, like my youngest, 
who has who has had no special serv- uh, services per his IEP since March. Yeah. See, there's a special ed kid who is is in an individualized or eligible for an individualized educational program, IEP, and is not getting it. March, April, May, we're in June now. You know, and, and, and Christine, I'm sure, is doing her best, but she does, she's not expert in this. Mm-hmm. So this is a real loss. Again, I, I, I'm erring on the side of opening these schools. Let's get these kids back into gear. Yeah, since March 13th. Uh, even in classes, are, even if classes resume pre-COVID style, children like my son will likely be behind their peers academically unless they had stay-at-home teacher parents as diligent as my husband, and in our case, behaviorally. Yeah, no, obviously it's a great family. Mm-hmm. Husbands cooperating big time, helping, and people are behaving. But no, you can't assume that in every family by any stretch. Right. On top of that, my parents won't get uh, within six feet of my children until there is a vaccine. Well, you know, uh, we have run into this. Mrs. Bennett and I have run into this. You know, a friend, a good friend of ours, Mrs. Bennett was talking to her and approached her and got within, you know, a few feet. And this woman just yelled at her, stay back, get back. Oh, wow. You know, it's just that there's a lot of little incidents like that. And I don't know, you don't hug your grandchildren. They're not really a very effective carriers of this for Christine's parents. I mean, they're not really at much risk. Uh, you know, check with your doc. But I, I, I think a lot of this is hyperbole and exaggerated big time. Okay. So, it's, uh, so it seems to me that at least for our young college voters and parents of school-aged children, the effects of COVID uh, and or the uncertainty of what will occur with school following Thanksgiving or Christmas breaks, this virus will likely be on our minds when we cast our ballots. Uh, of course, I pray that drives them to vote conservatively in recognition of the way the liberals were all too happy to lock us in our houses. Uh, thank you for all you do for America. Please keep it up. Oh, you're welcome. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I hope we vote conservatively because I'm going to tell you, if we don't, we're going off the left edge of the world with Biden. And I mean, I know he's going to pick his, his vice president, probably Kamala Harris. And the way they're pushing and the way the left is pushing, it's just going to be, man, say goodbye to this economy. I had a few things to add about schools. Uh, Christine's great email. We thank you, Christine. Mm-hmm. Keep us posted on what happens with the kids, too. Very interesting. We'll use Christine as a kind of test case. We'll keep track of your running time. Right. So you can get it down. Time and distance. And we'll want to keep track of your kids. Right. Uh, this is from Politico. Superintendents intend to open on time, but don't know when they'll resume in-person instruction. Well, if, you, if you're not going to resume in-person instruction, I don't think you're opening on time. <laughs> right. In a big survey, superintendents said their districts haven't announced when their schools will reopen. But more than half say they intend to open on time. Asked whether their districts uh, will reopen and resume instruction, 94% said no. Oh, no, they didn't announce. But we are close to the remainder of the 2019-2020 school year. Of course, we know that. Only 5% responded, yes, we will reopen based on state and local officials. 5% said a confident yes. Mm -hmm. About 56% of respondents said we intend to open on time. Uh, 32% said we are considering a modified schedule. 16% said we have not yet begun planning. 13% said they anticipated delayed opening. The survey was released as lawmakers and governors pushed to have kids back in school by fall. Man, I mean, they got to make decisions here. Right. It's mid-June. Right. Past mid-June. Mm-hmm. And I predict a lot of them are not going to open. They're not going to open in the way we're used to seeing them open. And I think just think that's bad. Kids, I mean, the lost ground kids are making. And... I was on Fox the other night on this. Um, 
they uh, quoted Jeff Canada, who's at the Success Academies in New York, black gentleman. And he said, you know, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. and Can we focus on the kids? And I was saying the, the minds of young black children matter. And, you know, those kids, particularly if they're poor and poor Hispanic kids and poor white kids, they're the ones who are suffering the most from not being in school. Mm-hmm. Could we have a little more consideration of them and for them and open these schools back up? Because, you know, you lose time. I mean, you lose the math first. Then you lose everything else. Then you develop other habits and, you know, habits of indolence and just playing video games. Let's, it's, let's get back at, let's get country back and let's start with getting our kids back. They're the least at risk from the virus and they're the least at risk in transmitting the virus. So that I feel, I feel very, very strongly about this. If uh, black lives matter, the minds of young black children matter. Goodness gracious. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Let's welcome Peter Kirstenau to the show. He's a partner with Benesh's Labor and Employment Practice Group. He's also a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Um, There's a lot going on. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about your piece here, Flames from False Narratives. I want you to tell us about that and some of the most salient facts that uh, the public needs to know about. But in the broader context, we've heard this kind of endless thing in modern era starting as I recall, with Eric Holder saying we need a national conversation about race. I'm not sure we do because it usually deteriorates into, you know, one side yelling at the other or just talking past each other. However, we believe Claude and I are having such a conversation. Uh, Claude's black, I'm white, and we have been doing this over the last few weeks, and we invite you to join us. I think you ought to identify yourself to the audience. Are you black or white? A little of both. I'm black. I, I am black is traditionally defined by Americans. That is, if you've got any kind of black ancestry, and I do, then you're black. My father, however, this is what's peculiar. My father, It's peculiar for many. My father escaped from the Soviet Union after World War II. He escaped actually from the clutches of the NKVD. So I have that sentiment also in terms of I look at things not just from the standpoint of I'm black and, you know, I've spent most of my life living in uh, black neighborhoods um, and I have that perspective, but I also have a kind of leavening perspective of someone who has been living under oppression. It's the kind of oppression, (laughs) frankly, that we are getting perilously close to imitating in the United States. Don't want to overstate it. This is nothing uh, even remotely like the Soviet Union, but the kind of instincts that are driving some of the more illiberal activities and actions on the part of many today are the kind of things that I think inspired some of the more totalitarian movements throughout history. Uh, maybe the most accurate one is going back to Robespierre and you know the French Revolution for our purposes. It's very concerning, very concerning, but I look at it from a perspective that isn't simply confined, and I don't mean simply to say as if uh, I'm diminishing it, but it's not only taking into consideration a black American perspective, but maybe a little bit broader perspective too. Not to be obsessive about this, because I'm not, but I just, for the audience, so they can get a picture in their mind, your father was a Russian and he was a white? Yes. Okay, a white Russian. Yes, he was white, yes, yes, white Russian. Yeah, not, not, in the, not in the colloquial term. I mean, uh, although you could describe him as that. He was born before the Russian Revolution, in fact. Yeah, okay. Uh, and died a number of years ago, so. And your yeah, mom was true. black? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So the audience knows who, who they're listening to on this. And, I, and again, I, I don't want to obsess on it because I think it's the least interesting part of a person is uh, their skin color and, the, and you know, what, what, what bloodlines they come from. But we live in the times we live in. 
and uh, because people are prepared to discount people because of one right. hue or color or another, I just wanted to establish that. I hope that's okay and not an intrusion on your on your privacy. So, your excellent article. I know about the flames from false narratives. What are these governing false narratives? And I'm going to talk, ask you questions, we'll go back and forth. What are the false narratives? Well, let me back up and just say that what we're seeing today was inspired, I believe, not the trigger point was obviously George Floyd. And I haven't heard anybody who has has said that was justified. Uh, he was fired. He's going to be prosecuted. I have not heard anybody come to his defense. Uh, but there's this narrative that this is something that occurs disproportionately with respect to black males. And that, you know, we've heard, for example, I think it was Joy Reid of MSNBC said that blacks are being hunted by whites. And she was responding to the Ahmed Aubrey video. Those are horrific videos. You had white civilians who tracked him down and shot him. So we have this this narrative that I think has been driving the violence, the riots, and all of the um, commentary that you hear broadly, that somehow this is something that is prevalent, happens all the time, and happens disproportionately to blacks and specifically black males. And the data simply don't show that and haven't shown that for at least 30 years. And because I'm on the Civil Rights Commission, this is something I see daily. I've got access to the data, and everyone does, really. I mean, all, it, it, the broader public can simply go to the Uniform Crime Reports, and if you don't believe the FBI is tabulating data accurately, you can go to the National Victimhood Survey, where victims identify the perpetrators of crimes against them. And there are a whole host of other studies that uh, I've read that the commission has conducted, where it is just unequivocally the case that, and, and Heather McDonald is, you know, and I know you know Heather very well, but Heather McDonald has testified before the Civil Rights Commission. She and I both have appeared jointly um, on different programs, but she has really done, I think, the yeoman's work, along with, to some extent, Roland Fryer of Harvard, uh, who is new to the game, but has been very good about the uh, uh, studies that he's done. I just read that he produced another study. It's a study that confirms what he had previously found to his surprise. You remember, he commissioned a, or he undertook a study while at Harvard, fully expecting that the narrative that blacks are being disproportionately hunted down, as Joy Reid put it, by white cops would be confirmed, and he found that that's not true. In fact, similarly situated whites, white perpetrators are a little bit more likely to be shot by cops than are blacks. And I've always taken the position ever since we did a study at the Civil Rights Commission that regardless of the granular data, there's a certain intuitive confirmation there. Because if you look at what has happened to any cops who have been involved in publicized black-white shootings, I mean, my goodness, they've been raked over the coals. And I think it's human nature for white cops to say, whoa, buddy, I'm not going to be treated like that. And so are reluctant to even pull their service weapon from their holsters when confronting especially a black suspect. There's another study, I think it's the National Academy of Sciences, among other things, black cops are 3.3 times more likely to shoot black suspects as are white cops, and white suspects are twice as likely to be shot by cops, period, than black suspects. Uh, but what's more important is, I think, the underlying data with respect to the disproportionate amount of black criminal activity that might prompt the kind of violent engagement that we see. It is disproportionate. I mean, blacks are in violent confrontations with cops more, but as a proportionate basis of their involvement in the type of crimes that would produce that, they are wildly underrepresented in terms of police involvement. Unpack that a little so, bit. That's complicated thought. Yeah, it is. Bottom line here is black males 
commit violent crimes, um, and those are defined by the FBI as murder, manslaughter, rape, aggravated assault, and robbery. If you unpack each one of those, murder, for example, blacks are 6.8 times more likely to commit murders than are whites. They are 2.74 times more likely to kill a cop than whites. And it goes all the way down. In, in fact, if you look at the total aggregate number of crimes, violent interracial crimes, for example, blacks commit 540,000 of them versus whites committing 91,000 of them. Uh, I mean, it's, it's wildly disproportionate. And yet, if you were to extrapolate from those numbers, you would expect that blacks would be shot more frequently than in fact they are relative to whites. And that's not the case. So the narrative is false. This isn't a matter of blacks being disproportionately shot. If you were to correct for black involvement in crime, in fact, uh, the numbers would be staggeringly uh, low in terms of proportionate numbers of blacks versus whites shot. So I think much of the narrative derives from a couple of places. History. We had a horrible history in this country. And I think almost every black person can point to somebody they know, a relative, a friend, who was the subject of some type of police misconduct. And everybody's universe, I think, is primarily occupied by what they know and who they know. So, you know, most people look at public policy matters from their own experience versus the broader data that may be available nationwide. But it is true that uh, because of the history in the, in the United States that, you know, you have a father or son, you know, a, a grandfather, an uncle who may have been mistreated by cops, whether or not they were shot. So I think that drives it. I also think that we have a prevailing narrative in the country right now that is being done for political purposes, that uh, the United States is a irredeemably racist country. The racism was at the founding, as we see in the 1619 Project of the New York Times, which is just the, the, one of the greatest pieces of revisionist history in, in history. But you've got all this underlying history and data that I think many folks believe has been perpetuated through the years and continues to the present time, but at least for 30 years or so, any disproportionality has not been the case. All right, I want to go through some of this. First of all, again, because of the times in which we live, it doesn't matter to the quality of the scholarship, but Roland Fryer at Harvard is a black man, correct? He is. People may want to refer to that work as what was the work of Heather MacDonald, uh, who was on last week. We're having a continuing conversation uh, about this. One statistic, if you could help me with, blacks are what percentage of Americans? It's either 13.2 or 13.4. And what percentage of violent crime is committed by blacks? 85.5% of violent interracial crime. And I've got other data points, but not with respect to each violent crime. Blacks are 6.8 times more likely to commit murder. One that's most salient to me is the black-on-black crime. That is, you're thinking of blacks as as victims. And there's no question that blacks are victims, but it is overwhelmingly victims of other blacks in terms of violent crime. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely right. Uh, Whites commit a vanishingly small percentage of violent crimes against blacks. It's overwhelmingly black-on-black of the, and it varies from year to year, but anywhere from 7,200 to 7,500 blacks are murdered every year. And we're talking um, last year, for example, 2019, nine of those were unarmed black men shot by cops. Nine of the 7,200. I don't have the exact figure for the number of the 7,200 who were killed by black, uh, other blacks, but we're probably talking north of Um, 7,000. Let me interrupt again. Much more black on black violent crime than white on black violent crime, correct? Oh, 
Oh, not even close. Okay. Not even close. Okay. Yes. And we don't hear so much about that. I We recalled last week the number of uh, black people killed on Sunday, the 31st of May in Chicago, was, I think, right. eight, 18. 18 people in right. one day. That's correct. What, what was the St. Valentine's Day massacre? Five people, was it? Five or six? Five, yeah. right. Same city. And this barely got a peep. So if Black Lives Matter... Uh, those Black Lives Matter, but we didn't hear about them, and we'll get we'll That's get into really. you know the the Black Lives of those of those officers. I just just want to establish that. So overwhelming amount of uh, black victims of violent crime are the victims of other black people. Right? That's correct. Right. The numbers are staggering. Uh, there's not it's not even close. Let's get underneath this a little bit because you said something which I want to bring Claude into it too. You said if you talk to people, black people, uh, they will tell you about the situation in their life or lives of their relatives. Maybe you have one, uh, Peter. I, I don't know, but uh, you know I've heard these stories many times. Claude, could you could you just describe the situation? That, that you encountered when you were what, oh yeah 12, no sure yeah, I mean it was it, it, it was it was one of, of many uh, but the first one 14 years old on my grandmother's porch I grew up in this neighborhood moved out when we were 12 in my grandmother's house so I'm on the porch that I'm familiar with with neighbors I'm familiar with police comes up uh, in the yard opens the gate it's got his gun drawn uh, and uh, you know he he, uh, he comes into the yard I'm assuming something else is happening down the street and so I'm, I motion as if I'm going into the house he says stay where you are stay where you are so then I, I stay on the porch he gives up on the porch uh, uh wrestles me down to the ground gun to the back of my head begins to search me my grandmother is screaming from the door that's my grandson my mother who just dropped me off she's in her car she's screaming that's my son he didn't do anything uh and this goes on for a few minutes um and and then he he walks off and that's you know one of a few uh, encounters but the first one um that, that, that did I you have any that were worse than that I uh, know that was the worst one. Um, hey, Peter, just brief comment on that. Enough, yeah. Familiar enough to you? Well, yeah. The closest to that was I was, I think, 18 years old, and I was visiting a friend in a majority white neighborhood. I was standing on the steps, and it just so happened that there had been a murder suspect in the area. I was unbeknownst to me. But uh, cops were swarming all over the place, and I was standing out there, majority white neighborhood, obviously black, and they came swarming up, shotguns drawn, the whole thing, then looked at at me and realized I didn't fit the exact description, whatever that may be. And later on, I mean, one of the guys uh, came up to me and said, "You, we thought you were this suspect, uh, apologized for it, and uh, went off. Uh, and that's the only one similar to that. And, and I don't think I've had any other similar circumstance. There was only one other time when I was in college when I was pulled over. I thought maybe it had something to do with racial profiling, but I was stopped for uh, a short period of time. It just so happened I had been speeding also in upstate New York. I was going back to college for preseason football practice. Right. And I was going a little fast and I got pulled over and it was in an area of upstate New York that is mostly white. And so they also said I looked like a suspect, which didn't make sense in one respect because I was, again, speeding at about 80 miles an hour. Yeah, no. And uh, all they could see was black pigment, you know, or, or, okay. or brown okay. pigment. So Okay. Okay. Well, by the way, I got to ask, where were you practicing football or going to football practice? Uh, Cornell. Cornell. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, Ed Marinero. No, you're too young for that. He was... Ed, no, 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 no. Ed, Ed recruited me. I was supposed to be the next Ed Marinero, and Cornell was wildly disappointed, and Ed's still a friend. Because you were I, not I the next like, Ed Marinero? You turned out not to be? I was not the next, I was not the next Ed Marinero. <laughs> so you had to be a lawyer, son of a guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Let's exactly. go back to Claude on the porch. Less likely this happens to a white person. Fair enough? 
I think that's true. What does that mean? Is there any rational basis at all statistically for for grabbing well, a guy who looks like Claude rather than a guy who looks like me? It's difficult to know the motivations of individual officers. Sure. But if you're simply going by kind of a computer narrative, a computer assessment of possible suspects, because of the staggeringly overwhelming involvement of black males in crime relative to any other um, demographic group, anybody making a determination as to who's a likely suspect should have. I mean, look, if you're walking down the street um, or, or walking in a field, and you hear a rattle, you're going to avoid the rattle because you know that, I know maybe that's a rattlesnake. I'm not equating any particular human being to a rattlesnake. Point is, you assess threats rationally. And if the threat in your experience and the data supports this, shows that it's disproportionately likely to come from young black males, then you may be a little bit more alert and cognizant of the fact that that's where the threat's going to come from. All right, I want to just pursue this a little bit further because I'm trying to understand a rational basis for what folks are saying. Buying all the statistics that you cited, that Heather cites, that Roland Fryer cites, still I, I see a basis for a certain, you know, what's the expression, even paranoids have enemies, for this for mm-hmm. this concern or worry. Let me ask you about this. I, there was so much garbage said after all this with uh, in the George Floyd case and now these other cases. But a couple of thought experiments based on reality. One thing that was said by Senator Gardner, Cory Gardner of Colorado, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of his, but he said, look, if I'm out there and I'm George Floyd, I'm in that situation, they're not going to do that to me, what they did to George Floyd. Yeah, there is there is some evidence of that. Um, right. Yeah, and right. Roland, Fryer, okay. Roland Fryer produced that evidence. What Roland Fryer f- found was that uh, although whites are slightly more likely to be shot by cops, it did appear as if blacks were the subject of lesser uses of force on a greater basis than were whites. So, for example, uh, blacks more likely to be handcuffed, more likely to be searched against a wall, things of that nature. So lesser forms of kind of uh, use of force were used more frequently against blacks than uh, as opposed to whites. And some of that, who knows, may have been unnecessary use of force um, or excessive use of force. Let me just hint at this. I think the argument would be better, more persuasive if the argument was not, you know, we get killed by you guys all the time rather than where it is assumed that we're more likely guilty than you guys are more of the time, given Gardner's point and and, and what you just said. We understand the greater uh, density uh, and incidents of crime in our neighborhoods, what, which may lead police and others to think it is more likely one of us that you see as a suspect rather than a white person. But nevertheless, that presumption is there. Two more cases. Uh, and I'm just trying to, you know, explore this as, as, as honestly as I can. So we got the case of, uh, is it Aubrey in, 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 in Georgia? Yes. The guy who's at the construction Aubrey. site. So, you know, he's followed in a truck by two guys, two white guys, uh, and a third guy, I guess, taking the video. That doesn't happen the other way, does it? You don't see two black guys in a truck and a third video following a white guy in a, in a black neighborhood. No, no, I, I'm not aware of that happening. Yeah. No, right. I think that that is too generous. I really do. And I okay. think it was because, you know, he's a black guy. Um, yeah. OK. Uh, but right. again, you know, I'm not I'm not defending anybody, but you can come up with, uh, you know, degrees of risk and assessments. I'm not defending those guys at all. But I understand. Um, I know, understand. I, but, I think, but I'm trying to understand a rational basis for worry uh, and anxiety and greater anxiety. Let's say two, uh, you are a parent of a child, of a boy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the father of two sons. Claude's the father of a son. When my guys went out driving, I was always very worried because 
car accidents, first of all, and drinking and driving, second of all. But always stress to them, uh, if you're stopped by a cop, you know, total and absolute politeness and so on. A lot of black parents say that to their kids, too. I can see a basis for perhaps more worry on the side of a black father or mother than a white father or mother. Fair? I think that's fair. I don't think, however, it's fair because there's a greater incidence of racist policing, but because that cops are responding rationally to perceived threats. The threat is more likely to come from black males. Are there racist cops? Yes. But I think broadly speaking across the country, it is more likely, and I think the data supports it, that the reason why cops are doing that is you're doing active policing. Active policing requires that you take into consideration a number of factors, the location of the particular person that you're, you may be looking at or following, the probability that somebody dressed a certain way is more likely to engage in a certain type of conduct. In other words, you have experience as a police officer as to where the likely threats are, spo- are, are likely to emanate. And you would be, frankly, and not a very good police officer if you didn't take that into consideration, just as you wouldn't be a very good physician if you didn't think that a dry cough might be an indication of COVID or whatever okay, it may good. be. So it's a threat assessment. What I'm suggesting, and, I, and I'm going to get off it, is that we might be able to have a more productive conversation if we didn't immediately escalate it to white white and black crime to killing blacks and so on and talked about some of the more subtle hints suggestions assumptions in our society not for the sake of making a case for systemic racism which i don't think is there but just for understanding the point of view of another person Sure. Fair enough. Okay. All right. And and now let's talk about where we are, because where we are is a mess, and where we are is not nuanced or uh, thoughtful, at least as as I was trying to be. I don't know if if I was. But where we are is a mess. And what will happen as a result of this? Uh, Do you believe in the Ferguson effect? Is that Roland Fryer, too? Ferguson effect? He doesn't call it the Ferguson effect, but confirms the Ferguson effect. His study confirms the Ferguson effect and predicts a Ferguson effect on steroids if you defund the police. Again, I'm I'm referring to Heather's data. Uh, I've also seen some independent data with respect to the Civil Rights Commission. It's fairly clear, I think, based on the data, that after both Freddie Gray in Baltimore and Ferguson there was, broadly speaking, a withdrawal from active policing. And the, I think, effect of that, there was a, a rebound of, not a rebound, there was an increase in violent crime in black neighborhoods. It occurred in my neighborhood in Cleveland. Uh, overall in Cleveland, homicides the year after Ferguson went up 90%. And that wasn't peculiar to Cleveland. Others had different percentages. 90, 90. 90, And understand that for approximately 35 years prior to that, there was a gradual decrease in overall crime in Cleveland and almost every other major city. You know, there were spikes here and there, but there was a general downward trajectory. So after that, you know, you might have a, a year where it might go up a percentage point or two, but right after Ferguson, 90% increase in homicide, there was increases in other crimes also, but it was pretty staggering. And I, I remember my wife noticed it herself. I mean, she was out, you know, she, she had a community development corporation that she operated and she kept coming home saying, you know, making reference to somebody that she knew that was affiliated with this corporation because it's in a, you know, all black neighborhood in Cleveland that had been the victim of some crime. And she said, you know, she had a kind of a longitudinal view of these things because she had been there for a long time. And she said, it's going way up. And I said, I don't see it because heck, I work downtown Cleveland. I didn't see anything. Uh, but then the data came out and it was astonishing. Uh, that was replicated throughout the country. Major cities, the top 50 cities in the country had double-digit increases in uh, violent crime after Ferguson. 
Uh, you look at Baltimore after Freddie Gray. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have the data readily available, but it, I mean, Baltimore's a basket case right now. It was not in very good shape during the Freddie Gray era either, but after the Freddie Gray riots, the level of violent crime remained high in Baltimore. There's a secondary effect to this, not simply just the withdrawal of active policing that's done kind of on a maybe voluntary basis or a prophylactic basis on the part of cops, but a number of cities were the subject of consent decrees. And if I'm not mistaken, I have to look at this article again, but Roland Fryer gets into the effect of consent decrees, which, for lack of a better term, can somehow hamstring or constrain the ability of cops to engage in the kind of policing they had been engaged in prior to the incident that gave rise to the consent decree. And because of that, again, Chicago is a very good example where crimes went through the roof and most people attribute it to the kind of confining nature of the consent decree. Instead of disaggregating the data, let's go and aggregate the data. All of this so-called national conversation, legislation going on in the House, President's proposals, executive orders, is to, quote, improve the situation. Overall, and then I want to break it down again, this conversation that's going on legislation, is this going to improve things or not? would you say? Net, net gain, net loss? Um, hard to say. I mean, you have to look at the specifics of the legislation. Difficult to make predictions. Um, I think some of it is done in order to say we've done something. I took a brief look at uh, the president's proposals, and I think, look, there's a lot of good in that. I think that um, there's room to make sure that policing is improved. I think it's probably best done at the local level, uh, dealing with the peculiarities of of local concerns as opposed to a national mandate. But to the extent you have programs dealing with psychological assessments, making sure that you've got databases related to police involvement in shootings, et cetera, you know, disciplinary issues, I think that helps uh, because you use that data to formulate policy going forward. I'll just take a wait-and-see attitude. I'm generally skeptical of top-down federal approaches to anything related to law enforcement. I just don't see how it can't have the effect that it had in the uh, same effect that it had Ferguson effect on Baltimore because I, I just can't see how cops would be more responsive to uh, violent crime in black neighborhoods and, and, and going in there in a hurry because the odds of them getting into trouble or difficulty or getting fired or getting into a situation that they're not sure uh, and, and people do lack I think an appreciation of the of the violence involved and the split second nature of decisions that have to be that have to be made so I, you know I, I'm, I'm putting as, as outliers here the Minneapolis thing, you know, we're going to defund the police. They're not going to defund the police. Um, and, you know, maybe they are, but that's going to be an outlier situation. But overall, I would think if I were a cop, uh, I would be more hesitant to get myself in a situation where I might be called upon to make a decision using my gun, and then God knows what happens to me. Yeah, I think all cops are hesitant to do so. Now, you know, it might be a good thing that uh, some of what we're seeing right now makes cops pause. But put yourself in the position of a cop, their family members, their friends. Uh, You know, they strap up every day and go to work. And a split-second hesitation can mean the difference between life and death, not just for that cop, but for his partner, for civilians who are in the area. Um, You know, there's a trade-off there. There is a real trade-off. Yes, yes. And do we... The ultimate objective here, remember that we don't want um, any civilians to be harmed or killed because, number one, of police misconduct, police 
misperception, or even by accident. But by the same token, law enforcement is an intrinsically dangerous occupation, and it requires that cops exercise prudent judgment to restrain criminal activity. We want the nation, our communities to be protected, and that requires that cops need to be able to make, they have to have at least a certain range of discretion. And if we start to bind them, then there's going to be a trade-off, and the trade-off is going to be an increase in crime. So I think we have to calibrate it in such fashion that we understand we don't want cops performing bad acts. By the same token, if we are overzealous in the restraints that we place on police officers, we will have an increase in crime. And it's not going to be small. It's not going to be around the edges. As I indicated, the increases across the country after Ferguson were pronounced. Really great stuff. And and I hope you see my point that this conversation, if it's to be had around the country, would be better off with a different starting point. One that's, you know, not the life and death one, but the perception one and, you know, getting thrown down on the porch one and I, how much more I worry about my kid in the car. I just think that might be, you know, a better, a better place to start. Let's finish this part. See, I'm worried that there's a nationwide Ferguson effect. A couple things. Uh, these cops got to look at it and say, holy smokes, you know. I mean, that guy was wicked, you know, the guy in uh, the George Floyd situation. That guy was wicked. But, uh, you know, what about this guy who was uh, fired immediately in Georgia for the yeah, Rayshard Brooks yeah. thing? I found it very interesting. Uh, is his name Philonis, uh, the, the brother of George Floyd, Philonis Floyd, I think is his name. He was interviewed. And, I, yeah. uh, they asked him to comment on it. And he said, well, that's an entirely different situation than what happened to George. Uh, and, and it was a very different situation than what happened to George. Uh, I don't want to get into all the great details of that, but it's certainly at least ambiguous, right, uh, what happened there with right. Brooks as opposed to uh, as opposed to Floyd. And so this cop, I'm, and I'm not thinking so much of him as other cops watching, is immediately fired when he shoots a guy who turns and is running away and shoots a laser at him. Maybe you put him on administrative leave while you're investigating it, but if I'm a, the, the point I'm making is not so much about him as other cops looking at that and say, well, then the hell with it, you know, I'm just not going to get myself in those situations. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for the suburban beat. Well, exactly right. And, you know, it, there's that chilling effect that nationwide we're having this quote-unquote conversation. It's not a conversation. It's more of a harangue. And it's always a harangue, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be helpful if everyone tried to put themselves in the shoes both of the victims and of the cops. Uh, with George Floyd, I have not heard anyone defend what happened there. No one. Everyone else yeah. saw that and was horrified by it. I think the same thing happened with Ahmed Aubrey, too. Uh, but go beyond that. If you're in the position of the cop, for example, in the um, Richard Brooks instance, that is of a different category than uh, the George Floyd situation. And at what point does a cop like that say, once he starts putting the handcuffs on him, does he stop if the guy flees and not pursue? What if this is actually a violent criminal, uh, somebody who may have priors, somebody who may have just returned from committing a crime, and the cop says, nope, I'm not chasing him down because I'll get fired immediately. He may turn around and do something. I may have to use force, and then that's, that's it for me. Or if I hesitate, I may get shot. My partner may, be, may get shot. So there are all these decision points that are implicated. And as a result, necessarily, there's going to be broadly based an increase in crime. Now, you may yeah. say, well, that's a, a trade-off. And I think some people are advocating that, saying that that's the trade-off. We should err on the side of not being aggressive and let the suspect go or not take any violent action to restrain the suspect. But 
a lot of these suspects are bad guys. Yes, bad guys. But see there, the, the cynical interpretation comes to the same conclusion. That is, uh, gosh, if I let him go, this guy may go commit crimes, to which the other cop might say, yeah, but it won't be against us. You know, it'll be in his own neighborhood. That's not a conclusion we want the guy to reach. That's not the way we want policing to work. But it could happen that way. Uh, you see what I'm saying, that's, Peter? Oh, let, yeah, let the guy go. Clear. Let him go beat up somebody in his neighborhood. My audience has heard this poor, very brief version. When I was drug czar and I spent the day in Boston, Roxbury, and the people in the, in the area, most of the minority, said, can't you keep these guys off the street? Can't you get these guys locked up and these drug dealers so our kids can come out and we can go sit on the steps and so on? And this is all I heard. And then I went to Harvard that night and all I heard was, why can't we legalize drugs? You know, all of them. So the, the, mm-hmm. there's, there's, a, there's a terrible disconnect there. But you see what I'm saying is, uh, sure, let, let it go. Just, I'm not going to get involved. I want to go to the suburbs. Let Brooks go back to his community. He's drunk. He may be violent. He's got a taser. Let him hurt somebody there, not us. Combine this, Peter, with what I'm reading about, which is resignations from the police department. My guess is this, quote, national conversation, which, as you rightly point out, is turning into a harangue, mostly, is going to mean a lot of people are going to quit and do uh, and do something else. I'm recalling, you know, in my secretary of education hat, and they said lower class size in California. Everybody said, well, this will make education better. No, it won't. Uh, the more the lower the class size, the more teachers you need, the d- deeper you have to dip into the teacher pool, which is not filled with tons of talented people, some talented people, but, you know, a lot of mediocre people, and some people aren't very good at all. You're going to have more not very good people in teaching. You're going to have no, more not very good people becoming cops uh, if you have to recruit uh, below where you want to. Uh, am I making any sense? I no, I think that's absolutely the case. You know, it's the law of unintended but uh, eminently predictable consequences. I'm just a lawyer. I'm not subjected to any kind of threats of physical violence. The only concern I have is doing a good job on behalf of my client. But if for whatever reason, even though I've done an adequate job, more than an adequate job, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, but the client doesn't like the outcome for whatever reason, I'm a little bit dispirited. I think most people are less enthusiastic as a result of that. You try to buck yourself up, but on the cop level, that that's an order of several magnitudes uh, above where I am and most civilians are in terms of performing their jobs. They're lives are at risk. You know, they think that they are, now look, they're actually putting their lives on the line for the community. I'm not putting my line on life on the line for the community. And if they think the reward, that is, whether it's a financial reward or it's a psychological reward, doesn't merit putting themselves out there like that, they're going to withdraw it. Either they are going to find another occupation, they're not going to be as aggressive in the policing, but they're going to make determinations. Uh, Some of that may be good for excessively violent cops. We have to find a way of winnowing those individuals out, and I think some of the proposals that are out there um, may help do that. But we are talking, broadly speaking, about a Ferguson effect. It's a human, natural human reaction to the kind of a program being leveled at cops currently, much of which is not merited and is the a function of the false narrative that I've been talking about. I know a number of cops that I've spoken to um, over the years. I mean, I, I dealt with cops for the last 40 years. I used to represent the city of Cleveland on labor issues, so I encountered cops all the time. I still do it now, uh, just in terms of friends. And it's human nature. These guys are like, you know, look, I'm trying to do well. Most of these guys are good cops who are trying to do well for their community. They became cops because they believed in protecting human beings in their neighborhood. And uh, they're not asking for a 
pat on the back every single day. They clearly are not paid very much relative to the risks associated with it. Uh, and then to hear the current national narrative is dispiriting. And it would make any human being say, why should I put myself out there? You know, why should I extend myself just a little more and disproportionately increase the probability that I don't go home at night? And that then means that more crime is going to be allowed to go on without being checked. And it's the Ferguson effect. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. We just have a few more minutes. And again, a wonderful conversation. Thank you for contributing so much to it. Any recommendations you have that you think you would make as, I mean, you make recommendations in Commission of Civil Rights, Labor Relations, recommendations you would make either nationally or locally uh, that would make sense, reforms? What I'd recommend is locally is I, I think the reforms should more likely come organically from local level. And each community is going to be a little bit different. There may be some uniform reforms, such as certain reporting requirements for disciplinary actions, psychological issues that may be going on, you know, um, bars against individuals who have tested us in a certain way with respect to psychological uh, evaluations. If you reach a certain number of certain types of disciplinary actions, you know, you may be taken off of street duty or maybe uh, fired entirely or suspended. Those kinds of things make good sense, but I'm really skeptical of a top-down national reform effort because, again, each community is different, has different needs, um, different exigencies, and the cops there have different concerns also. A cop in, uh, you know, I don't know, someplace up in Idaho probably has different concerns than a cop on the southern border or a cop in Newark, New Jersey. And I think a one-size-fits-all approach, except for maybe certain items, again, with respect to psychological testing or whatever you may have, I think that is uh, a prescription for failure. You know, one of the other ironies in this is, you know, the, the harangue that goes on and you don't understand black people in the black community. One of the ironies here is that I remember Jack Kemp, my partner, used to say, you know, I know black people like a, most white people don't. I used to be in the shower with them all the time you know, <laughs> in the NFL. Uh, but, you know, the cops interact with black people all the time, particularly, you know, in, in, in in high crime neighborhoods, unlike a lot of, uh, unlike a, a lot of, indeed, most uh, white people. Uh, and, and the distance, the thing I learned, you know, I was an instructor in the Boston Police Academy for a while. We went out on patrol one night and there was a, a robbery and a guy got in the car and it was a getaway car and we got the siren on and we, we went after him. I was in the back seat, Peter, and as we were chasing this guy, other cars cut in front of us to slow us down. And I said to the officer, what's going on? He said, don't they know we're chasing this guy, so they're, sl they're slowing us down. I said, why? He said, because they're on his side, not on our side. I said, well, d do something. Arrest them. You know, pull them over. And he just laughed. He said, yeah, civilian, civilian. But I, I, it showed me a couple things. First of all, I thought I was a smarter, more sophisticated guy. Man, I was I was on the street. I was ready to go. Put your hands up. I'm not showing the restraint of this, of this veteran cop, Officer White, I remember, Sergeant White. And, you know, he had a lot more experience in that community. And then later on that night, we picked up a three-year-old child, black child, who'd been a man by both parents and I remember how he dealt with her with such tenderness and kindness it is an irony isn't it that a lot of the most uh, 
direct interactions between white and black uh, are police and black citizens. Yep, that's exactly right, Bill. And I'll tell you, I have, you know, I have interactions with cops all the time. And when you deal with many cops, again, we stipulate there are bad cops. There are also bad dentists. There are bad lawyers. Unfortunately, when you have a bad cop, the consequences are going to be probably a lot worse than if you have a bad dentist or a bad lawyer. But the fact of the matter is that these guys... Um, they do. They encounter all Americans on a more intimate level and at a level that requires them to assess these individuals, not not as you know, males, females, black, white. Uh, they have to assess them in terms of who they are and what their risk is and how they interact with them in the broader scope of society. And it's that, a guess. Not only do they, that assessment is a guess. That, I don't think this guy's going to pull something on me. You know, go, go ahead. Didn't mean it. Right. And the consequences can be catastrophic if the guess goes wrong. But also keep in mind, we we seem to be talking in stereotypes and stereotypes that are grounded. And sometimes what stereotypes are are there because sometimes there's some elements of of fact or evidence to support them. But they're usually, you know, uh, they don't apply in individual cases necessarily. And that's the problem with them. However, having said that, we're still talking in stereotypes of cops of like the 1950s. Significant percentages of metropolitan police forces are you have black cops. It's not simply just this dynamic where you've got white cops and black suspects. Very often in a place like Cleveland, Ohio, I mean, half the cops I interact with are black. In other localities, you may have Hispanic cops, you may have some Asian cops, especially up in, in the, the Pacific Northwest. And uh, right, it's right. not this dynamic where you've got white cop, black suspect, but we are painting a broad brush, presuming that all cops are almost acting as if all cops are white and the suspects are predominantly black. And uh, the interactions are fueled by a racial animosity that is the same or, or, or racial subtext that is identical to what existed, say, in the 1950s, 60s, maybe even the 70s. Things have changed, and unfortunately, I think the narratives that are surrounding the current debate are rooted in, in at least some part, if not large part, in perceptions that were formulated decades ago and don't apply now. Not to say that those perceptions are not instructive or informative, but they need to be amended based on our current situation. And it's my contention that, yes, there are bad cops. Yes, there's some racist cops in a nation of 330 million. But in the main, the current narrative, the prevailing illiberal narrative, is that you know cops are horrible. They're out to get blacks. They treat blacks poorly, disproportionately. Um, to some extent, as Roland Fryer shows, yes, there are differences in treatment. Much of that treatment comes in black cops against black suspects. But in terms of lower level types of uh, restraints, yes, it does appear, at least according to his one study, that blacks are more likely to be subject to um, you know, being put up against a wall and frisked or handcuffed than are whites. But whites are slightly more likely to be shot by cops than blacks. Either way, the current narrative, I think, is poisonous. It's going to continue to fuel, I think, the wrong prescriptions for remedying any problems, and it also creates just horrific divisions. We need to get a hold on what the facts are and not act out of emotion. It's tough to do, 
But that's why you've got supposedly have leaders, right? And unfortunately, it seems as if our, our leaders have abdicated their traditional responsibility of being responsible and making sure that the facts are known and we act in accordance with the due process that our American system affords us. We, two, we two seem quick, to have thrown all that out. Two quick things. One, on that last point, I remember uh, all the work I did in education. Uh, the, the book uh, that made, meant the most to me was a book by Michael Rutter called Ten thousand hours about education he said the most single most important thing about a school is its ethos its habits the habits of the creatures in the place the the sense of what it's about and that is set by leadership school leadership uh and you can sense it when you go into a school i went into 120 schools peter and after the first 50 or 60 i developed clinical judgment i could go in there and with 80 percent accuracy i could tell you whether this was a a place worth being in or not. And I think I could still do that. Doctors have this kind of clinical judgment. True in police departments too, ethos is what's so important. The leadership, as you just said, and the kind of environment that permeates the department. Is it cynical? Is it them versus us? Or is it something better? Is that fair, that ethos, the habits of the I creatures? I think that's fair. It's consistent with my own experience that I saw uh, when I was representing the city of Cleveland and I think, you know, it's in almost every organization. It's of particular import when you're dealing with organizations as crucial as police forces, fire forces, EMS, where lives are at stake. Uh, it's a tragedy, and it's going to be a tragedy for those communities where the leadership, the political leadership especially, but leadership on a whole host of levels, dispirits the police doesn't take into consideration the manifold issues that they confront on a daily basis, um, acts in accordance with political opportunism and the prevailing narrative right now, I think it's going to be extraordinarily damaging to many police forces. It depends on each individual police force's leadership to make sure that the morale stays where it needs to be. Morale is essential for safety forces, much more so than any other occupation, it seems to me, because the stakes are so much greater. But we've got, unfortunately, a cowed and sometimes opportunistic, politically opportunistic, political leadership that has completely abandoned the role of being objective, of being uh, good stewards of their particular communities and are throwing cops under the bus. What they're doing is throwing their communities under the bus. More black people are going to get let killed me, as a result of, broadly speaking, the Ferguson effect. And let me ask you this just last thing. One of those statistics is, and we just you were just going over some of this, is that a, a, there's more uh, killing of black suspects by black cops than white cops. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a black cop is 3.3 times more likely to be involved in a shooting, and, and, and as a result, many of those shootings are of black suspects. Um, so that's what you see. All right. And um, Ted Williams, a former uh, detective here in D.C., is on, on TV a lot, said one recommendation he would make, and this is along the lines of the, what I just said about black cops, black defendants. He said you're in a t- tough situation. Uh, your white cops call and get a black cop there as soon as possible. I, I don't know if that makes sense. They're not, they're not necessarily going to de-escalate the situation. They may escalate it, uh, given what we just said. And second, is there time? I mean, there are an increasing number of blacks on police forces. But does it follow, by the way, that if you have an increasing number of blacks on police forces, are going to be more sympathetic uh, to the situation in the black community, or maybe not? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because I haven't studied that discrete issue. We haven't seen that at the Civil Rights Commission, other than what the data shows in terms of police interactions. But, um, you know, I think, frankly, that given, especially the current zeitgeist, that uh, a black cop is probably not going to be, quote-unquote, more sympathetic 
to a black suspect than a white cop is. Um, black cops are not going to be as affected alternative that we hear currently. And the, uh, frankly, the, the, the attack against white cops stereotypically is if you've got white cops who are racist. Since black cops you know, can't be accused as readily of being racist, I think that they have a little, one, at least one level of insulation that black cops don't have. So I don't think that, you know, I think there is, I don't think it's great, but I think, frankly, as a black guy, I probably am going to be looking a little bit more skeptically at a black suspect than perhaps a white guy would, because I haven't been bludgeoned by the prevailing narrative yeah, 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 that, yeah, you know. Yeah. Right, right. All right. I got you. Wonderful conversation. Peter, get to your other work and call. We so much appreciate you, Peter Kersenow. So much appreciate you. Good to hear from you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. Okay, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. Claude will catch up next week.